truth today. Um, it's, we start in Isaiah chapter 28. So I want to talk about truth and the Lord's truth. But in uh, talking about it, I want to bring out the aspect of lies as well. And <clears throat> there's opposites. You know that the Lord, when he, right from the first pages of the Bible, the Lord sets up these opposites, doesn't he, day and night, and good and evil, and in the first chapter of, of Genesis. And uh, I love a verse in Isaiah 45 where he says, I create peace and create evil, I create night and day. And he actually spells it out. Sometimes people, you know, they have a go at me at work about, oh, you're God, you know, blah, 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 and he does this and that. And I said, he doesn't deny that he created evil. I show them the verse. Um, it's not that he is evil. He's just allowed it to be in the world, just the same as he's allowed night and day to be in the world. And um, so that there is his truth, but there are also, there's also the opposite of that. Untruth and lies and so on. And this chapter brings it out really well. Uh, he starts off by rebuking the proud leaders of Ephraim, Israel, and they're drunken and they, it, he describes that they've erred, their judgment is affected through strong drink and so on, the priest and the prophet, they're out of the way. And um, he, he's, he's really telling them off there. The tables are full of vomit and filthiness. And in you know, a pretty graphic description, but then in verse 9, he says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. And he's, it's a prophecy, really, of uh, the New Testament. And um, those that sort of start anew, and just like babes, and, you know, are, are just um, breastfeeding and so on, and then they have the milk of the word in the beginning, that's what it's like, and you're just learning a little bit, and then you, you become stronger and older and so on. And in verse 10, the precept must be on precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And that's how, that is how we learn in the Lord, and it's great to learn that way, because uh, if we learnt, you know, like just a huge download dump, you know, like all these gigabytes all at once, uh, I doubt that we could use it. We need to sort of learn each lesson one by one, don't we, like a brick in the wall, put it in place. I know that brick, you know, I know that brick really well. Now I'll put the next one in. So that's how we learn. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. And we know that that is referring to speaking in tongues. Why? Because Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 about this verse in reference to speaking in tongues. And so he's obviously talking about the New Covenant, the New Testament church, this people being them. Verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So the truth of the Lord is going to bring forth this rest. Uh, the old covenant's going to fail and there'll be a new one built on righteousness and faith and truth, and it will, there will be rest. But then in verse 13, we have a kind of an echo of verse 10. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So the Lord's precepts, his teachings and so on are for good, but if people ignore them and if they want to do things their way, they can become a snare, something that will break them, something that will send them backwards. And this is his saying this to Israel because this is what they're doing. 
And in verse 14, he describes them as scornful. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. He's speaking to the to the leaders, as it said in, um, where is it, verse 7, the priest and the prophet. He's speaking to them. Because you have said, you priests and prophets, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. And he's actually spelling out what these people have done. In turning aside from the Lord's precepts and ways, he's saying, you've made a covenant with death, not with me, with life. As it says in Deuteronomy 30, choose, choose life, not death. I'm going to lay it out in front of you. He says, you've chosen death, and you're in agreement with hell. Now, the word hell, if you look it up in the original Hebrew, is actually the word grave. It says, so, you know, you've made an agreement with the grave that, yes, you're going to do things your own way, live your life your own way, and you accept that at the end of your life you know that you will die, just as everyone dies, and that's your deal. Now, I know people in our fellowship who had that kind of arrangement. Uh, Curly Kane is one, and he gives his testimony. He says... You know, he's a farmer from down Donnybrook Way. He says, I was an atheist and I just looked at the plants and the birds and the flowers and I felt like I was like them, that they had their time and then one day they just died and went back into the ground and I accepted that was my life. I just enjoy my life and one day I would die and I would go into the ground and, and uh, decay just as they do. Um, so this spells it out. A covenant with death and with hell we're at agreement. But the second part of the verse says, when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, in other words, God's judgment, the, the final days, as it were, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. And so, you know, we've actually made this fabric of, of lies to live by, where, and we know people do that. You know, how many times have you spoken to people and told them the gospel and they've said, well, I don't believe that. I believe if you're a good person, you know, we're all going to go to heaven. You know, if I don't, if I do good to my neighbor and I don't hurt anyone, then I will be accepted. And those sorts of things. It's there. It's their system. It's their uh, judgment, not God's judgment. Uh, do you think of uh, Cain and Abel? You know, Cain thought he was offering something good, but it wasn't accepted. And instead of accepting, oh, well, that's not God's way. Um, perhaps I need to change. He got angry and killed his brother. And we need, it says in that passage that sin lies behind the door. If you, if you don't accept God's judgment and you want to do it your own way, sin's crouching behind the door, ready to snare you. And that's what the case is with, in this verse here, with these people. They've made lies their refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. And, um, the world is very much like this. And I want to bring out an example, a historical example, that uh, just came to my attention only last Sunday, actually. Mel and I were flying back from the U.S. visiting a daughter and a husband, and uh, on the on the second leg from Sydney to Perth, we were sort of looking for something to watch, and we came across this uh, series, mini-series called Chernobyl. And uh, so we watched the first three episodes on the plane, one hour each, and it's quite captivating. So who's who's seen that? Anyone seen that? Handful of people. Um, the word Chernobyl, who knows what it's referring to? So a wider question now. Not just seen it, but knows what Chernobyl is. Hands up. A few more people. 
But don't worry, I'm not going to ask you a question, so you can put your hands up nice and high. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, all right, so we might have the first slide, thanks, Kerry. Chernobyl. Now, why am I bringing up this example? Because as you watch this series, and I mean, I was around in April 1986, I was 27 years old, I was working in the Northern Territory as a journalist, um, and this, this thing happened, and I remember hearing reports, I wasn't in the Lord, by the way, hearing reports of a radioactive cloud coming from the Ukraine and drifting across Western Europe and went as far as Scotland and people were all very scared. And what had happened was there was a major, major nuclear power plant accident which occurred on that day, 1986, and the place is called Chernobyl. And the example of this is, as I'll bring out, the whole thing came about because of a network of lies. You know, as we read here, a refuge of lies and a falsehood, which, which sort of led to this accident. And in the end, there was a meltdown and the reality became evident. And I thought, what a good analogy that is for the world and the what's to come, you know, the meltdown, you know, the elements melting with fervent heat, the end of the world and the reality of the Lord being revealed. So I might just bring this out because it's, uh, it's just an interesting Example. Um, now, this is, let's have, have the first slide. So, this is actually from the mini series where they reconstructed it rather well and they were very faithful to the original um, events. So, they, they made sure that it was depicted exactly as it happened. And um, the, uh, there's the first day, so on a Saturday, the 26th, it actually occurred in the early hours of the morning, about one or two in the morning. This is the daytime of the same day, and uh, the guy on the right is the um, guy put in charge of the commission investigating the accident, and the guy on the left is a, is a Communist Party official. And that helicopter is flying over to drop a load of sand and boron on top of the um, melting nuclear reactor. And that helicopter got too close. They, they were sort of in radio contact with it saying, don't get too close, but it got too close and immediately just kind of melted in midair and, and fell out of the sky because of the radioactivity. Next slide. That's after the accident. You see the gaping hole there. There were four nuclear reactors in this plant and that's reactor number four that completely uh, melted down and exploded and, and uh, the, the heavy... Um, hugely heavy uh, roof that was on top of the uh, nuclear reactor just blew off and all this uh, radioactive material spewed into the air. 400 times more radioactive material was released from Chernobyl than the combined bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 400 times more radioactive material released from this accident. Next slide. That's another shot of the damaged reactor taken afterwards, obviously. Um, sometime afterwards, I mean. Next slide. This is an actual shot, um, historical footage, and they recreated this in the series exactly. They had the people exactly like this. You'll see them, uh, I don't know if you could see on the top of, of the heads, sort of pieces like the one in the foreground, pieces of lead. These were homemade um, bits of armour that they put on themselves, lead sheeting that they sort of wrapped around their, their heads to protect themselves from radiation and they sort of put them around their middles as well 
And they had tried this on top of this roof, which is right next to the blown up reactor, with masses of radioactive graphite, which had been part of the um, assembly of the, um, the core and so on, served a particular function, it was hugely radioactive, and they tried to uh, move it in all sorts of different ways without using human beings. They got robots from Germany and Korea and so on, tried to push it, but those robots immediately malfunctioned because of the radioactivity and they couldn't use machines. And in the end, they decided they had to use human beings, but the amount of time that they were allowed, the maximum amount of time that they were allowed to be up there shoveling this stuff and dropping it over the edge there into the reactor was 90 seconds, once only. Like they only did it once. And in some cases, I read only 40 seconds. And that was equivalent to an entire lifetime of uh, radioactivity that a normal person would, would experience. Um, so they went through something like 7,500 men, soldiers and others, who, who were drafted to do this, this job. And you, they ring the dinger, and out they, they run out. They've got 40 seconds. They're quickly sort of shoveling, throwing over. The dinger goes again and they run back in. That's it, job over for them. The next person takes over. So hugely radioactive. Many people, of course, died. The official count was only something like 40 people, but actually thousands and thousands have died from the radioactivity over the years. Um, an exclusion zone, next slide please, was set up around the reactor and... Um, it covers 2,600 square kilometres. It's actually only 90. This place, Chernobyl, is actually only 90 kilometres north of Kiev, the capital city of the Ukraine. And of course, at the time in 1986, this was part. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, which uh, disintegrated in 1989. But the Soviet Union was made up of lots of different states and countries. One of which was the Ukraine. Next door, Belarus, and both of those are severely infected. Uh, affected and, as I said, 2,600 square kilometres of their territory is uninhabitable for 20,000 years. No one's going to live there for 20,000 years. That structure you see, that dome, was only just built about a year ago, finished about a year ago. It was built by the EU at the cost of $3.3 billion Australian to cover the damaged reactor and to contain it for 100 years, which... In the scheme of things, when you think of 20,000 years, is, is not that long. But uh, after the accident, about a year later, they managed to cover the the um, reactor with a concrete sarcophagus and sort of entomb it, but that began to decay itself. And they've, you know, it took a long time, about 32 years or something, to finally get this one built uh, with all this sort of engineering know-how of the EU and put that over it. In the foreground, you'll see the town of Pripyat, where all the workers at the power plant lived and the firemen and all the different um, families and so on associated with the plant. It's been unoccupied since April 1986 and uh, it's actually becoming a bit of a tourist attraction. You can go there if you want to. Um, you know, you can take your Geiger counter and it, they reckon that as a result of the series, which was only made about six, released about six months ago, that tourism there is going to increase. About 100,000 people went there last year and they reckon that it about 150,000 people will go there, you know, after seeing the series and the tourism. So, obviously, the radiation is at a level that's manageable. But why do I bring this out? It's not just a sort of a story of a, a, a nuclear accident. Um, it's all about the why it happened and 
the culture of uh, untruth that sort of led to this situation. Uh, next slide, please. Oh, that's not the the reactor number four, but a different part of the plant that's just lying there rusting today. Next slide. This gentleman, Valery Legasov, is a Soviet chemist, and on day one he was put in charge of the commission investigating the accident, and uh, he was the director of an institute, you know, professor and so on, and he was put in charge. He had to work with uh, Communist Party officials, he had to answer the KGB and so on. Now the Soviet Union, I don't know how much you know about the Soviet Union, but the culture of the Soviet Union is one of fear and suspicion of the KGB monitoring people, of um, people monitoring one another, of turning one another in, of uh, parents turning in children and children turning in parents and neighbours turning in neighbours to the authorities, people disappearing off to Siberia to the gulags and so on. You, you may know something about the Stalinist era. Um, but this, this culture of the Soviet Union was a very much one of fear and suspicion, of lies built upon lies, and that's what this gentleman discovered as he started to investigate the accident. He discovered that uh, the control room operators in this nuclear reactor, uh, some of whom were, were extremely young, the chief engineers aged 25, only been on the job for four months and this sort of thing. Not only that, but they were actually doing a safety test and they hadn't been told in advance that they'd be doing the safety test. The shift that was supposed to do it, the day shift, uh, was supposed to do the test at about uh, 2 p.m. It didn't happen. It got delayed for some reason by 10 hours. The night shift came on at midnight. Had no idea there was a test going to be conducted. Um, were thrown in at the deep end. Were scrabbling around for manuals to follow. And the idea of the test was to, ch to check when the um, backup generators came on to the power to keep the, the water flowing through the reactor to keep it cool. If there was a power outage, the main electricity went out and then it would take one minute for the backup generators to kick in and they had to sort of work out a way to keep the reactor safe for that one minute. And so they were doing this test, but as I said, the operators had, didn't know what to do. But not only that, there had been several accidents in other reactors that the Soviet authorities had suppressed and kept quiet. There were flaws in the um, operation itself of the reactor and all of those were kept secret because they didn't want any information to tarnish the reputation of the Soviet Union. And so there were sort of lies built upon lies, there were cover-ups, the state control, there's lies to cover mistakes, but in the end, the reality just blew it all apart. There was a button on the control panel, AZ-5, which was supposed to be your, your safety button, that if everything else went wrong, at least you could press that, stop the reactor, everything would be safe. But they didn't realise there was a flaw because the control rods had graphite tips. They immediately pressed this button, which is supposed to put control rods back into the reactor and stop you know, the nuclear reaction going on, nuclear fission. But the, the graphite tips was the, was the problem, and it immediately caused a massive nuclear reaction, vaporisation of all the water into steam, blew the lid off the reactor, and a massive explosion and fire that went on for for a couple of weeks. And so this safety switch was completely useless. And as a result, there was the reputation of the Soviet Union was severely tarnished. 
Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union at that time, later attributed the breakdown of the Soviet Union to this accident. You know, there's all sorts of things written about the breakdown of the Soviet Union, but he puts it down to that. In a sense, it, it blew the truth open, and this gentleman doing his, uh, his inquiries, he found out all of these things. He was tr The KGB tried to keep him quiet and just sort of say, make up stories to cover it all, but in the end he refused to do that. He stood up at the hearing and he said, every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later that debt is paid. Pretty powerful words. I'll read it again. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later that debt is paid. Think about the world and what we are just reading about in Isaiah. You know, the world has, has decided to live by a uh, fabric of lies, sort of a smokescreen of lies, if you like. But when the Lord comes back, he's going to just blow everything wide open. You know, talking about the last days and, the, and, a, and a great melting of affliction such as not been seen before, of a kind of World War III scenario. And if we just go back to Isaiah, in verse uh, 17, it says, Judgment also will I lay to the line. Thanks, Kerry, we, we don't need that anymore. And righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. So it's going to come about, and every lie we tell and do incurs a debt to the truth. It could almost be a scripture, couldn't it? Uh, that, you know, people telling the lies, but it's a debt to the truth. God's truth doesn't change, it's immutable. But when you're telling these, these lies, it just builds up until eventually there's going to be an explosion. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Now, it had it took its toll on that gentleman. Two years after the accident, he committed suicide. It was not only the radiation sickness that he developed because he was there on day one and he was working at Chernobyl all through clean-up, but the pressure he got from the KGB, the pressure from the state to suppress the truth of the accident and so on, he was followed... You know, he's bugged, all the rest of it. So he he made these five cassette tapes stating exactly what happened, released them out to the scientific community and committed suicide. And those five tapes circulated actually had a huge effect because the scientific community then put a lot of pressure on the authorities to make the reactor safer. So all the other, the operating procedures of all the other nuclear plants, of which there were many in the Soviet Union and still are, um were changed to be safer and, of course, disseminated around the world to make, you know, so other people could learn the lessons. And, of course, other countries wanted to help. As you see there with the EU helping, you know, it affected all of Europe. They were affected by this. Um, let's just read a little bit more from Isaiah. In chapter 16, we just jumped over verse, sorry, not chapter 16, verse 16, still in chapter 28. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste or not flee. And right in the middle of this <coughs> discussion with the, with the proud, scornful people, the leaders of Jerusalem, God is saying, I'm actually going to lay in my holy city a precious stone, a tried stone, a cornerstone, a sure foundation. And who's he talking about there? Our Saviour Jesus Christ. The, the precious cornerstone of the church, 
of the new order that's going to come when this world comes to an end after the meltdown occurs. And those that believe on Jesus Christ won't have to flee because they've got somewhere solid that is truthful, that will not move, that is not built on fear, suspicion, lies and cover-ups and so on, this refuge and falsehood that it talks about in verse 15. But it's safe and secure, and we know that. We feel that, don't we? That we're, wherever we are, if we're on our own, if we're with a friend or wherever we are, the Lord's with us, we're safe. We read Psalm 91 about things coming on the earth, the terror by night, is it? And, uh, you know, people falling on one side of you and the other side, but don't worry. We read in Luke about look up, your redemption draws nigh when you see all these signs in the world. We don't have to worry. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in me. Um, judgment will I lay to the line, verse 17, righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies. And so, you know, it's funny how often hail comes up, mentions it in Revelation. It's like the lies are just going to be gone. The reality of the Lord coming back, seeing Jesus Christ, every eye shall see, every knee shall bow. Oh, it's true. We can't deny it. You know, it's here. The reality will sweep away the lies. And your covenant with death, in verse 18, shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. You know, with the grave, you just thought you were going to go peacefully to grave to the grave and just be an, a non-entity forever. But no, that's not going to happen. Uh, your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goes forth, it shall take you. From morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation, only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. A little reference there, perhaps a metaphor about rest and righteousness. The bed is too short. You know, you've made a bed for yourself in this world. It's too short for rest. You've wrapped yourself in your own righteousness. Not enough covering. You haven't got the God's covering. So the covering is narrower than you can wrap yourself in it. There is no escape. Uh, let's go to another scripture. John chapter 18. And uh, here Jesus is being brought before Pilate to on a sort of a mock trial. Pilate himself is... Uh, unwilling to, to execute him, but the Jews are determined. They say it's unlawful for us to put anyone to death. We want you to do it. And Pilate sort of feels he has to ask some questions because you know, he just doesn't want to put someone to death for no apparent reason. And he asks him, is he the king of the Jews and so on? Um, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went down again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no fault at all. And um, interesting conversation and in the middle of this, Pilate says these three words, what is truth? And in a sense, he's summing up in those three words what the whole world that doesn't know God feels about truth, that there is not an absolute truth, an absolute God, absolute justice, all of those things. Um, what is truth? We can talk about truth. 
but it's kind of a relative sort of term. I mean, maybe Pilate was saying, maybe we can read this on a couple of levels. What is the truth here, Jesus? You know, what are you, what are you saying? Or, but maybe he's being very existential, very philosophical. You know, what is truth? You know, come on, don't be naive. There are, you know, and Jesus is saying um, that I should bear witness to the truth. I mean, what are you saying, Jesus? What is truth? You know, is there a truth? And um, Pontius Pilate was, you know, a Roman governor. He was, uh, you know, he'd obviously risen up through the, the Roman system. He'd seen the, the pragmatics of, of operating the, the Roman Empire and he would have been a man of the world and he would have known that, you know, you can't always have moral, total moral conviction on something because you have to compromise it, you know, on the next day. Uh, maybe someone is innocent, you have to execute them as it occurs here. Or, um, you know, other things happen, collateral damage, whatever. Uh, civilians get killed, that sort of thing. You know, he would have thought, is there a truth? He's, he sort of exemplifies the world. Now, well, let's have another look in Isaiah, chapter 59 this time. And again, the Lord is uh, rebuking Israel here through the prophet Isaiah, talking about their feet running to evil and shedding innocent blood and not knowing the ways of peace and not having judgment and so on. And he says in verse 14, And judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Truth fails. Truth is fallen in the street. Think of a visual image of truth lying in the gutter along with all the plastic waste, the old chewing gum, and the, you know, dog stuff, you know. That's, that's what the world does with truth. Puts it, lets it fall in the street. And I think we see that more and more today than ever. Uh, there are articles day after day about fake news and fake, you know, truth, supposedly truthful stories put out. And just get ready, hold on to your hats, folks, because this year, US election in November, you know what happened four years ago in 2016? Fake news, fake stories about the two opponents. On one side, you had Hillary Clinton for the Democrats. The other side, you had Donald Trump for the Republicans going at it. And on Facebook all of these false stories about each other, particularly about Hillary Clinton. One of them said, this is just one among many. This is completely untrue, by the way, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. Uh, it was reported that uh, the Democrat candidate, Hillary Clinton, was sexually abusing children in satanic rituals in the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza restaurant. Actually came out in the news. And, and, okay, they know most people, it's a bit like scamming, spam or whatever. They know most people aren't going to believe it, but if there are a few people that believe it, it might win a few votes for your side. And this is what actually happened. This is just one of, of thousands of stories. There was actually a man who believed it and got his guns together and said, I'm going to go and release those children and went to this pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., charged in, discovered there was no basement, um, there, there were no 
children there. You know, it was a complete hoax. There was nothing, nothing in that. Now, we know the word post, right? As in post-war, you know, meaning after something. There's this word that's, that's now being used for the era we live in, the post-truth age. Did you know that? We live in a post-truth age. There is no truth. So if someone says something about one political party, don't believe it because it's probably not true or uh, it's been twisted in some way. Both works both ways, of course. We're not taking sides, of course. But according to the Oxford Dictionary, who, who come out with a word of the year every year, in 2016, their word of the year was post-truth because that was the year of the US election, the, the, the year that it just went absolutely haywire. And I just looked up this morning on the New York Times... A story about Russian hackers uh, came out uh, on the 12th. What's today? Today's the 12th. Okay. So it's pretty current. No, it actually came out on the 10th, sorry. So it came out two days ago. Um, The National Security Agency in America and the British counterpart of that issued an unusual warning in October. The Russians are back and growing stealthier. Um, Russia's intelligence agencies have been uncovered boring into the network of an elite Iranian hacking unit and attacking governments and private companies in the Middle East and Britain, hoping that Iran will be blamed for the havoc. Uh, This cyber war that's going to occur this year is not going to be like the last one because American defences have vastly improved in the four years since Russian hackers and trolls mounted a broad campaign to sway the 2016 presidential election. Facebook is looking for threats it barely knew existed in 2016, such as fake ads paid for in rubles and self-proclaimed Texas uh, secessionists, secessionists want to break away from America, logging in from St. Petersburg. Actually, my email account got hacked by Russians recently, a few weeks ago. Um... Yes. Um, Millions of Americans are still primed to swallow fake news. So that's what's going to happen this year. So how does anyone know what's true anymore when there's just so much misinformation flying around and um, it's it's a very scary thing. But propaganda, of course, is not new. It's been going on for a long time. The Nazis perfected it in in the 1930s. Hitler, when he was in jail in... uh, 1924, and wrote Mein Kampf, wrote about it, and he, he came up with some good ideas for how to um, convince the people. And just think of, I'm going to read a couple of things that Hitler wrote. Think about it in the context of today's American political climate. This is Hitler. Propaganda must always address itself to the broad masses of the people. All propaganda must be presented in a popular form and fix its intellectual level so as not to be above the heads of the people. Propaganda must be confined to a few bare essentials, and these must be expressed as far as possible in stereotyped formulas. These slogans should be persistently repeated until the very last individual has come to grasp the idea that has been put forward. And, you know, they say that even if something is a blatant lie, and you know it's a lie, if people repeat it enough, you start to believe it's true. That's Hitler, 1924. They put it into practice in the 1930s when they achieved power in 1933, right through the 30s and so on. And um, now it's not so different from what we see happening today. And even in our own country, on Friday, there was a a big controversy where a senior staff member of Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, who puts out the Australian newspaper and a few others, 
resigned with, with a, in a blaze of glory, sending emails to every employee and the media and everything saying that she couldn't, uh, in all conscience, work for this organisation anymore because they were completely misrepresenting the cause of the Australian bushfires. That because they've got a certain agenda to support conservative governments, that they're constantly emphasising that it's arson and so on that causes the bushfires and not other reasons. What's the big one? Climate change. You know, so they're anti-climate change. So whatever your views on this doesn't matter. It's just the way that uh, the news is skewed to promote a certain point of view is the point that I'm making. So a post-truth age. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 4. We know that, uh, as I said before, we hold on to the truth through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that we don't need to worry. We don't need to strive. We can, we're at rest. We just do the things we're good at doing, praying, reading the word, getting together and having meetings and fellowship and so on, because those are the things that keep us safe, remind us who we are. We look in the mirror of righteousness and we, we're reassured because that, that's where we know who we are by doing those things. And uh, just one verse here in verse 18. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. Let's say the perfect day is the day that Jesus Christ returns. And the path of the just, we are the just by, by the grace of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the path that we're on, of course, is the straight and narrow way that few find. Matthew chapter 7. And the path of the justice is a shining light. Now, the world doesn't see it. It doesn't see it shining. We see it shining because we've got eyes of faith, not of sight. To us, it's a, it's a wonderful path to be on. There's no other path to walk on. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So we're on this path, aren't we? And what we want to do is stay on it, help brothers and sisters stay on it, and when they stumble, pick them up, bring them back onto it, and help other people who are out there in the darkness come in and walk on it too. you know, And that means inviting a lot of people, throwing out a lot of seeds, and not all of them are going to come, but a few will, and walk on the shining path. And that's what we want to do, and all the people said. Amen. Another one, uh, Matthew chapter 13. You know these verses well. In verse uh, 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And it's interesting that the Lord uses this example of a pearl because a pearl is a highly valued thing in this world. Everyone seems to share a recognition of its value and they look at it and say, that, that object is beautiful. There's something about a pearl that is beautiful, isn't it? It's not just that it's shiny. It's more than shiny. There's something about it that's quite amazing. It's spherical, mostly. Um, not all pearls are spherical. <laughs> but when they are spherical, they, they're particularly beautiful. And they're perfect. They're complete. Isn't that much like our salvation? You know, something the Lord has given us that, that can't be improved on, that is precious, that we sell everything we have, you know, our old life, all the things that we, we particularly valued are of no value in comparison to this thing that we have now, this this pearl, this salvation, and uh, it's stated as a metaphor. It is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who sells everything that he has and he buys that pearl. Well, we've got the pearl. 
So we need to sort of appreciate it, we need to hang on to it, and, and we need to share it uh, like the, the shining path. Okay, just uh, we're sort of looking to a couple of scriptures to wind up now. Judges chapter 2, just for a moment. We'll pick it up in verse 1. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now this is the Lord uh, speaking to the children of Israel. They've been brought out of Egypt, amazing miracles, brought through the Red Sea, fed in the wilderness. Uh, They've fought the battles all through the book of Joshua, 31 kings defeated. And they've taken up occupation in the promised land. And the Lord is saying to them, I'm not going to break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And there's a warning here for us in that we have been delivered out of the world. We have gone through the Red Sea in in the sense of baptism, been through our wilderness, heading for the Promised Land. And along the way, there are these other things that are looking to seduce us, these other gods and the peoples, and they're all the people that we interact with in the world. They have other gods. They're not necessarily um, these gods of the Old Testament with stone and wood and things they bow down and worship, but there are all sorts of other gods in this society, aren't there? So many things that have been raised up to the status of a religion. Um, you know, they say that in Melbourne, uh, Australian rules football is a religion, don't they? I mean, it's a bit of a joke, but it's kind of true. And there are many, many other things that become like that for people. Uh, we all like our football, by the way. Um, I'm not trying to condemn anyone, but we know where it's its place in our life. And it, things can become thorns in our sides, is what it's saying. And they did. They became a thorn in the side of the, of the children of Israel. So it's a warning that uh, even though we know we're living in this world of lies and then falsehood and so on, we can still get tricked. Uh, in verse 16 it says, The Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand that those that spoiled them. Verse 18, And when the Lord raised up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies. In verse 19, And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves. So the Lord was always there providing them with teaching and the right way. But when they ignored it, or when the judge wasn't around, they slipped. We all need our meetings. We need our, our fellowship. We need each other. We need our prayer and our reading, reading the word. You know, we make, need to make sure we use the things God has given us to keep us safe in this very dangerous world. And we're finishing John chapter 8. I'd just like to turn up to the New Testament. Great chapter. Jesus discussing things on the Mount of Olives here about uh, his kingdom. And on uh, in verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's speaking, in a sense, in the Old Testament times because the New Testament hadn't yet been created through his death. And he's telling them, if you want to know the truth, if you want to escape this world of lies and falsehood and so on, then you need to follow me, continue in my word, be my disciples, then you'll know the truth. You'll know the truth. You'll go above the glass ceiling. You'll know all the things of God 
as far as is possible to know in this life, and you'll be free. And those words are simple to understand. You look them up, they still mean truth and freedom. So by following Jesus Christ, we are set free from the lies and we build our lives on the truth. And all the people say, Amen. Amen.